It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, May 29th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern, a mental health resource for veterans and service members this Memorial Day weekend. We've got to eliminate the stigma. We've got to get rid of the stigma. And um, that's easy to say, very hard to do. And Georgia voters elect a rematch in the swing state's governor's race. In today's politics, an evenly divided state like Georgia, just a tiny little bit of crossover can be the difference between winning and losing. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Memorial Day weekend is hard for a lot of families and service members and veterans still grieving fathers and sons, brothers and sisters, moms and dads who never made it home from war. This weekend is also the last weekend of Mental Health Awareness Month. In increasing number, the service members we mourn are not always lost to combat, but also struggles with depression. Retired Major General Mark Graham knows both of those losses. In 2003, his son Kevin, a senior Army ROTC cadet, died by suicide. In 2004, his son Jeff, a second lieutenant, was killed by an improvised explosive device in Iraq. General Graham, who retired from the Army after 35 years in the military, took that grief into helping other military families avoid that same kind of loss. He and his wife established a suicide prevention program at the University of Kentucky. And General Graham is the director of Vets for Warriors, an organization based at Rutgers University, providing a 24-7 national call center for the military community. Well, thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. And uh, my wife, Caroline, lost both of our sons. Our, uh, our son, Kevin, uh, was an Army ROTC senior cadet studying to be an Army doctor, uh, was planning to go into the Army after, was going to go to medical school and go to the Army. Uh, Kevin struggled with depression. We knew that. Uh, we knew he was sad, and we just didn't know you could die from being too sad. We didn't understand it well enough. Um, Kevin was keeping it a secret. He didn't tell others that he was on depression medication. He was embarrassed by it, we think. Um, and I'm, we think the stigma certainly had an impact there. Um, and Kevin uh, died in June of 2003. Um, and uh, his brother Jeffrey, his older brother Jeffrey, was uh, just commissioned a month earlier as a uh, second lieutenant in the Army after graduating uh, as an engineering uh, student at the University of Kentucky. Jeff was deployed to Iraq. Uh, and uh, eight months after Kevin uh, took his life. Jeffrey was killed by an IED when he and his platoon were walking up toward a bridge and Jeff stopped his, his platoon because he saw something odd on the, on the bridge. Uh, and the uh, IED was remotely detonated and killed him and one other soldier, but the rest of the platoon uh, was saved. Um, so both our sons died fighting different battles. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin clearly died fighting a battle of the mind and 
Jeffrey died fighting a battle of, with an enemy in a faraway land. They were both following in your footsteps. You're a, a retired major general, uh, what, 35 years in the United States Army? Yes, almost. 34 years, seven months. Almost. <laughs> um, what was that? I, I imagine you're very close. I mean, they, they wanted to follow in your footsteps and uh, service to this country is a big part of, of your family. Well, it is. I mean, I had a couple uncles that served a little bit, not not long, um, years and years ago. So we really never had much connection with the military at all when I was growing up. Um, and so I um, I just decided to go to Army, Army ROTC and, and talk to them and see what it was all about. And I ended up in Army ROTC and stayed. <laughs> um, you know, you, you mentioned something that both of your sons um, were essentially casualties of, of war, right? And, and I think we we this time of year, Memorial Day, we think a lot about combat losses and, and we don't want to diminish that. But the military has been dealing for many years now with mental health issues. It sounds like a decade ago, we didn't know a lot about that, the, these sort of hidden wounds. Um, uh, is the military making strides and sort of understanding how best to, to ensure that, that our, our men and women in uniform are getting the care or getting the support, the services that they need? You know, it's, I think people are trying. I just believe that in my heart that people are trying. Are we doing enough? Probably not. I mean, could we do more? Of course, we could do more. Um, how much, you know, how much we can do. I, I think it's a, a combination of things. I think it's an, a research is still required, more research to find out, but we've got to, we've got to eliminate the stigma. We've got to get rid of the stigma. And um, that's easy to say, very hard to do. Um people are worried about their employers finding out if they're struggling. They're worried about, you know, what people might think of them. They'll think less of them. Um, and we've got to make mental health part of health care, integrated health care. It's just part of it. It is, it's real. Uh, we learned from, sadly, with Kevin's death, we learned that mental health is an illness. It's not just a sad feeling or, you know, a character flaw. It, it, it's a true illness. And, um, and we just, we just missed it. Uh, we lost Kevin 19 years ago next month. Um, it feels like yesterday. Yeah. Do you get a sense that, you know, the, the, the ROTC program, I mean, this has to start early, right? This can't start, you know, from commission or, or enlistment. This has to start sort of earlier in, in life, earlier in the process, uh, when, when the military first sort of starts to, to interact with these young men and women, right? I think so. But I also think it needs to start with society earlier. Sure. I mean, I, I think we need to, uh, a lot of young people, sadly, are taking their lives as well now. And uh, with mental illness, you know, and I think COVID added to that. Uh, some studies are showing. So I think we need to uh, to make sure that, that we talk to children and let them know. I mean, you can't do it when they're too young. But when they hit us uh, the right age, make sure they know, look, if you're having these kind of sad, if you're ever having sad feelings, I mean, everyone gets sad. But to help them to know, if you get sad and you feel sad a lot or anything, Come talk to mom or dad or come, you know, come talk to the teacher. Go see your teacher. Tell someone that you're having these feelings, you know, that you're having these sad feelings like this so that we can make sure they're doing OK, that we can get them help because there is help and there is hope out there. Um, but it's hard to make that first step. I mean, I, I often say it's a sign of strength, not weakness to come forward and get help. But again, that's that's, you know, I can say that all day long. That's hard to do. So society has to we have to get our arms around it um, and be there for each other and help people not judge.
I mean, I think that, that part of what you're talking about is is maybe even a, a disconnect when people think about the military, right? I know before we came on, I shared with you a little bit that I have been diagnosed with uh, anxiety, depression. I take medication. I've done that for a few years now, but it took a long time for me to get comfortable even talking to my wife about it, uh, talking to my doctor about it, sort of reconciling internally with myself that, that this was help I needed. And then you think about people who, who go to war, people who who have this calling within them to to be strong and, and be the support system, maybe for their families. How do you reach out to your commanding officer and say, sir, I think I think I'm having mental health issues? It's hard. It's hard, not just with your commanding officer, but your senior NCOs and the other officers and your peers. You know, you, you know, no one wants their peer to think they're weak. Yeah. And that's what people think. If there's something, if you got depression, yeah, you're weak. Well, you know, if, if you've got high blood pressure, you go get high blood pressure medicine. No one thinks to think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But but what about other medication? There are, it's it really is an illness. And that's the thing I think we need got to get past both. And that's what Vets for Warriors can help do. And that's why I was going to ask. I mean, so this is an organization that sort of allows veterans, allows active military to get in contact with an organization outside the VA, outside DOD. Correct. Correct. Why is that necessary? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's an option. It's another resource. It's another choice. Um, It gets confusing. People are struggling. They've got things going on. Oftentimes someone will call and they'll have some financial issues or others. But then as the peer starts talking to them, there's more going on in their life. And we start with strength. Uh, with our model, uh, reciprocal peer support model, we start we start with strength. You served or you're serving or and I served, let's talk. And then from there, you have a conversation and you find out what's really going on. Well, let's, you know, are you open to getting some care? And if you are, we'll connect them to mental health care, to other resources, and then we follow up with them. And sometimes they'll want to go to the VA. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they want to go on base or the military installation. Sometimes they won't. So we work with them. It's like a concierge service. You know, whatever whatever fits for you, let's connect you to the right care so that you can get help because there is help out there. Um, and we answer the phones live uh, 24 hours a day across the country for anyone that's ever worn the uniform of our nation. They can call or their family can call uh, or if they're serving today so to, to be there. Let's have a conversation. I mean, discover the power of connection is our tagline. Mm-hmm. What sort of conversations, if any, have you had with uh, Pentagon officials, uh, Secretary Austin or, or General Milley, or, are they uh, sort of involved with this organization? Um, what steps have you seen them take maybe to address some of the mental health issues within our military? Yeah, I know one of the things we uh, we talked about years ago, I was still on active duty and the uh, Army uh, is, is moving forward, but has been moving forward, I understand what that is, is getting more care down to the lowest level units, getting mm-hmm. social workers, uh, I think the Army, I'm not sure if the other services did, started a program where they bring on social workers and the, they're trying to get at least a social worker down to the lowest. I mean, we can't get enough psychologists and psychiatrists. I mean, that's hard to do yeah. nation, nationwide, but trying to get social workers down to the lowest level of our units so that so that a, a service member can come by and see someone and get some help. I mean, you have chaplains in most units, right? And we have, you know, uh, physician's assistants or medical folks in most units. So why don't we have somebody there for mental health? Why don't we have that? And so uh, that's one of the things I think that is key is as is, is low a level as possible, have someone there um, for mental health care. Is this a, a particularly uh, difficult time, a particularly busy time for your organization, Memorial Day? I, I know, you know, a lot of service members may be thinking about falling, falling um, 
uh, friends, you know, that, that they served with. It is. We actually put a banner up on our website yesterday just to alert people that please know that, you know, this is a high, mm-hmm. high call volume time of year for us uh, every year. And then with, and then with the Memorial Day, the PBS National Memorial Day concert um, highlighting our story, uh, I think we're, we're anticipating even higher numbers, which is what we want. I mean, yeah. Best for Warriors is, is a win-win situation. We hire veterans and we train veterans to help other veterans. So, I mean, we, we hire veterans. So that's that's the key is, is, is veterans helping veterans. We also have licensed clinicians there also do training and help. Um, but it's not clinical. We're not a crisis line. Our goal is uh, we do get some crisis calls. We work uh, with the VCL, but our, our goal is upstream. Let, mm. Let's help before someone reaches the point of crisis. You know, call us early on. You know, when, when something's going on, call us. Let's talk. And let's see if we can get in front of this so that you don't get to that point of crisis. I want to finish with this because I think people that are going to hear this are going to want to know how they can get involved with an organization like this. What resources do you need for, from listeners, from viewers? Um, well, I mean, uh, so we're in, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we get our nonprofit status through the Rutgers University Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we're affiliated with Rutgers. Um, uh, funding is always big for a nonprofit. You know, people sure. go on our website and donate. Uh, you can be an ambassador, sign up to be an ambassador. And the other way people can can help is follow us on social media and spread the word. We really don't want anyone out there to be alone. We want to make sure everyone knows 24 hours a day, call someone and talk to a veteran. And uh, don't be alone. Going through things on your own, call someone, call us, call Vets for us. We'll connect you to resources. We'll be with you and we'll stay with you. Well, General Graham, your your family has uh, given more to this country than most. Um, I thank you for your service, your sacrifice, your son's service and sacrifice as well. Um, and uh, I wish you the very best on what is a challenging time of year uh, on this Memorial Day. Well, thank you so much, Jared. Appreciate you having me on. And thank you for the uh, help and expose the exposure to help people know that there is help. Voters in Georgia will face a choice this year that they have faced before. Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams. Kemp, the Republican incumbent, coasted to a primary win Tuesday, easily defeating former Senator David Perdue, who had the backing of former President Trump, waging much of that race over Kemp's refusal to overturn the 2020 election results. Abrams easily won the Democratic primary. The former state lawmaker has spearheaded voter access initiatives in Georgia and around the country. Kemp defeated Abrams by about 55,000 votes back in 2018. It was the closest governor's race in Georgia in decades. Kemp's easy win this week and wins of other Republican incumbents down ballot who were challenged by Trump-backed candidates naturally is raising questions about the power of Trump's endorsement in Republican primaries. There is certainly evidence to show it can boost a candidate. Look at Ohio, for instance, perhaps Pennsylvania, too. Kyle Kondik is a frequent guest on the Fox News Rundown and our Democracy 2022 coverage. The man Managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics, join me to understand Tuesday's results and what they tell us about November. Uh, look, I mean, I think pretty clearly Republicans still believe that Trump's endorsement is worth having in primaries, but you know, him blessing a candidate does not necessarily move mountains, and uh, particularly if he's going against an, you know an, an incumbent in the case of Brian Kemp, who 
um, really is, is perfectly, you know, plenty conservative uh, and is someone who I think a lot of Georgia Republicans are happy with. Really, Trump's only real complaint about Kemp was not going along with essentially trying to overturn the election in Georgia in 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of sore loser stuff. And frankly, David Perdue, the Republic, former Republican senator who challenged Kemp with Trump's blessing, I don't think Perdue ran much of a forward-looking campaign. He didn't really have much of an argument to make against Kemp other than looking back on 2020. And um, obviously it wasn't a good argument because uh, uh, Purdue got crushed in the election. And interestingly, Brad Raffensperger, the embattled secretary of state, who Trump also does not like, um, was able to win without a runoff. So, mm-hmm. you know, look, I think there's always this sort of um, tendency to maybe kind of overreact to what happens in a given primary. Um, you know, sometimes it can be to say, boy, Trump is um, has the power to, you know, anoint people like when J.D. Vance won in Ohio a few weeks ago in that Republican Senate primary in, in, in that state. Um, and then maybe it swings the other way and you think, oh, well, Trump doesn't have any power in the party at all. If you look at Georgia, uh, I, you know, like with almost anything else, it's more nuanced than that. Again, Republicans still want to get his endorsement, but his endorsement is not going to move the entire electorate the way that he wants it to. Yeah, I mean, there there were a lot of issues, to your point, in, in Georgia. And, and one of the, the arguments, at least when I spoke to uh, David Perdue, the former senator, uh, about why uh, he was challenging uh, the, the sitting incumbent governor in the first place is he said that he did not think without uh, Trump's support that you could win a general election. Um, that was his argument that he sort of made uh, against running against Brian Kemp. Um, is that a worry for Brian Kemp? Did I mean, I don't think so. the Republican and, and, you know, electorate sit out, you know, maybe maybe some will, although, you know, Stacey Abrams, the Democratic uh, challenger, who, of course, uh, uh, can't beat in a, in, mm-hmm. in a close and contentious race in 2018. I think her presence on the ballot will be, you know, galvanizing force for well, for Democrats, probably, but also for for Republicans here. And so. Um, you know, I would think that that uh, whoever may be wavering on Kemp on the Republican side probably would, would eventually come into line. And also, frankly, it might be helpful to Kemp that Trump has been critical of him in, in the sense of, of, of appealing to some swing voters. Um, you know, maybe Kemp gets a small amount of crossover vote. And, you know, mm. in, in today's politics, an evenly divided state like Georgia, just a tiny little bit of crossover can be the difference between winning and losing. So um, I think Kemp is in a good spot. Uh, to crystal ball, we do our race ratings. We actually moved the race from toss up to leans Republican following mm. Kemp's victory um, because we, we, we just, you know, it's a Republican leaning year. Kemp's an incumbent. Kemp, you know, certainly proved himself in this primary. And so uh, I think he's he's uh, in a better position now. Where does the crystal ball have the Senate race in Georgia? So we still have as a toss up. Uh, certainly it's a golden opportunity for Republicans as they you know seek to reclaim the Senate. Um, but, uh, you know, I think Ralph Phil Warnock is the Democrat is a, is a fairly strong incumbent. And, you know, Herschel Walker, the Republican challenger, you know, remains kind of an untested, unvetted candidate. Um, look, but look, if, if Walker can get through the general election, um, you know, without taking on major hits, uh, you know, it's easy to see how he can win. And so it's, it, you know, it's toss up. And, and again, it remains a really good opportunity for Republicans. I just I just, you know, I, I, I kind of want to see more from Walker and see if some of these various, you know, kind of personal and business controversies that have emerged with him, uh, whether they you know leave a mark on him. What did you make in Alabama? This was another race that sort of had a, a Trump effect in, in the sense that there was the early endorsement for uh, Congressman Mo Brooks. Then the endorsement was taken away after Mo Brooks didn't really uh, pop in the polls. 
uh, Brooks ends up sort of popping in the polls late. Uh, where's that race headed? Uh, Katie Britt, who finished in first place, yeah. although did not get to 50 percent needed to avoid a runoff, but she got about 45, which I thought was pretty impressive. She certainly ran mm-hmm. ahead of her previous polls and she's a uh, former chief of staff to Richard Shelby, the long serving uh, Republican yep. senator. He actually has been in the Senate so long that he was first elected as a Democrat back in the 80s. That's right. <laughs> uh, and then switched parties, uh, it, it, you know, right after the uh, Republican wave in uh, in 1994 as part of the kind of realignment in, in the South. But Shelby is is a kind of leadership friendly I'd say more, kind of more establishment oriented Republican. I think that's probably um, Katie Britt's mold too. And, you know, I think that uh, the Mo Brooks saga is kind of interesting because he was sort of left for dead to finish in third place behind Mike Durant, who's the other top contender, mm-hmm. but Brooks ended up finishing ahead of Durant, but pretty far behind Britt. So Britt certainly has an easier path, I think in, in, in the runoff. And we'll see if, we'll see if Trump actually dips his toe in, dips his toe in again, um, you know, maybe he actually backed Brit because it would actually be kind of an easy it might actually be kind of an easy victory for um, for his ledger. But, we'll, you know, we'll see. Regardless of if it's Brit or Brooks, I would imagine that the, the crystal ball still has that as a pretty heavily favored Republican. race. Oh, yeah. It's a t- safe, safe Republican for the general election. Uh, you know, of course, we, we did have Democrats win a, a Senate race in in Alabama under unique circumstances in late 2017 yeah. with Doug Jones. But Jones got you know, got beaten very badly in the more kind of normal circumstances of the 2020 general election. And, you know, that's a um, that's one of the most Republican states in the country, really. It is. Um, Henry Cuellar has declared victory in his uh, primary challenge against Jessica Cisneros. Um, I guess Cisneros has not yet conceded. Is that race, in your view, decided? And boy, that's a, a, a maybe one of the swingiest districts in the country, right? Well, so it is, um, you know, the, the South Texas in general swung pretty heavily toward Donald Trump compared to um, in 2020 compared to 2016. And that's a district that Trump won by or sorry, that uh, that Joe Biden won by about seven points. But that was down from how Clinton had done in 2016. And I think Cuellar basically is is I think he's arguably a better fit for the district because he's he's certainly much more. Uh, are much more, much more moderate, much more conservative more moderate yeah. Than, yeah. than Cisneros, who's who's a progressive. Um, and, you know, there, there are kind of rumblings out there that Democrats are taking a big hit with Hispanic voters. And that would be a great place to, to test that, uh, you know, c- coming up in the fall. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, we saw Democratic leadership come in for Cuellar, even though um, he's he's basically the only kind of pro you know pro life anti abortion mm-hmm. rights Democrat left in the House, which of course was you know kind of upsetting to the, the left wing of the party. But you know Democrats, um, I think they 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 felt the Democrats in leadership anyway felt like um, if Cuellar lost that that this, this seat might be lost too. And and you know of course there's still a cloud hanging over Cuellar because he's you know the, the FBI raided his home a few months mm-hmm. ago. And that has not been resolved. So, I mean, who knows? Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you, you, I mean, you know, there could be a recount and what have you. But, uh, um, when it, you know, whenever the vote counting ends, whoever's, whoever's got the most votes, you know, you're the, you're the better position. And then you but see it if sounds like irregularity sound, or something. I was going to say, so it sounds like if it holds and Cuellar is, in fact, the, the, the Democrat on the ballot in November, uh, it is a better outlook for Democrats than it would be if, yeah. if Cisneros uh, I think so. Race. I mean, we, we haven't rated it as a toss up. 
Um, yeah. I think it, you know. I think if there was if if there was some sort of positive resolution for Cuellar in the FBI investigation, I think maybe it would be more like he'd be he'd be a little bit favored. Um, but uh, we'll see. And again, it's quite possible that there'll just be this um, this sort of wave in districts like this um, um, if, in fact. Um, you know, some, some uh, uh, Hispanic voters are uh, tilting toward the Republicans, um, you know, as, as indicated in, in, in 2020. Mm-hmm. So definitely one, one to watch. That whole region in South Texas is South Texas area is a, a real place of interest for this election. I'd say the state of Nevada is, too, um, for many of the same reasons. Let's finish uh, in Wyoming. Um, Big rally this weekend with uh, Trump and House Republican leaders all uh, backing um, Hegeman in in her challenge against Liz Cheney, the the longtime Republican from that state. Um, How's that primary shaping up as as far as you guys are are looking at it? You know, we don't do we don't do There's not a lot of polling out there, is there? Yeah, they, and, and uh, you know, um, it's hard enough to rate general elections, let alone <laughs> So uh, we're, I'm going to take a pass. I'm making a hard prediction of that one. I, I you know, I guess sure. if one way of looking at it is, is uh, I think Cheney can look at the results in Georgia and think that that, that might be, you know, that's encouraging because you had, uh, I mean, I think particularly Secretary of State Raffensperger, um, you know, it seemed like he was probably headed for a runoff and was probably going to lose. And, and you know, he uh, performed quite well and got over 50 percent. One thing that, ha- that that may have helped him to some small degree in, in Georgia was that Georgia is effectively an open primary state. And uh, it, it seems like there were, you know, a substantial number, tens of thousands of uh, people who voted in the 2020 Democratic primary who crossed over to vote Republican this time. And, you know, a lot of them may very well back Raffensperger. Um, it seems like there was some strategic voting going on. And I know there's been some effort, you know, there aren't, there aren't a whole lot of Democrats in Wyoming, but there's been some effort by, by Cheney and her supporters to try to get uh, to try to get some crossover. Support they they do have an open so, primary in Wyoming, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, uh, you know, diff- different states do these things in different ways. Some yeah. have like pretty hard registration by party, like Pennsylvania is that way, for instance, just to um, mention a, a state that recently had a primary, but a, a lot of other states are kind of open or effectively open. Um, and that's my understanding of how it works in Wyoming. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that that one, that one is still fluid. And, and, you know, it's really one of the more interesting, to talk speak specifically about Trump and his influence, um, that's, you know, one of the, you know, after Georgia has been, you know, completed, uh, that's one of the big ones coming up, although the primary isn't for a few months. It isn't. But I mean, it's fascinating because it's not just now Trump who is backing Hegeman. It is House Republican leadership who is. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's been this obviously been this huge break between Cheney and, and House Republicans, in part right. because um, a lot Cheney of it has to do been, with the January 6th comments, the yeah, January and, and, 6th and uh, investigation, her role on, on the committee. And, Ch- and Cheney has been, you know, really critical of her colleagues, which is yeah. that's one way to, you know, to, to help the leadership <laughs> yeah. because uh, leadership will put up with a lot, but they don't necessarily like that. I think that was part of, you know, Madison Cawthorn just lost yeah. his primary recently. And um, um, I think that, that you know, it, it's totally different than the Cheney situation. But I think that, that for, for different reasons, leadership felt like or, or, you know, some important people in the Republican Party felt like, you uh, you know, Cawthorn was was had sort of gone, gone off the reservation, basically, and uh, and, uh, and 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 I guess you could you could argue that maybe Republicans feel Cheney is similar again for totally different reasons. Well, it, I mean, it, it will be a test of of the brand. I mean, Cheney is is a brand in Wyoming, um, and yeah, not just absolutely. Liz Cheney. I mean, you think about her father, the vice the former vice president. Um, 
you know, there, there's a lot of history there. It'll be a fascinating race, I think, to watch. Yeah, and I mean, it's the you know it's the smallest state by population, um, and so it's not going to be some sort of huge universe of voters, and so it's uh, you yeah. know maybe you know it's it's physically or geographically a you know pretty large chunk of land, yeah. but not that many people. So um, it's 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 an intense campaign. I think that the, a lot of the voters there are probably going to feel inundated, but I would I'd imagine also the participation will probably be pretty high because it's such a high profile race. I mean, certainly we've seen. Um, I think primary turnout in general has been pretty good, particularly on the Republican side. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the more you know, interest does 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 uh, um, does drive turnout to some degree. Yeah. I've not been to Wyoming, so I don't know what the, the TV commercials there look like, but I imagine. Yeah. yeah me, getting, me, me neither. I, I, I imagine I'd, they're getting I'd, uh, inundated. I'd love to go, I'd love to go sometime. <laughs> we should go out. Let's do a trip. We'll do a reporting trip out there. It's beautiful That's country right. as well. Um, and we'll get some fresh air. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, Listen, always appreciate our conversations, Kyle, making sense of all of this. We'll talk soon, my friend. Thanks, Jared. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, the Supreme Court is back in session with major cases left unresolved, including the final word on that leaked draft abortion opinion. Cases are also outstanding on gun rights and prayer in school. We will keep you posted. And President Biden will welcome New Zealand's leader to the White House as the administration continues a focus on the Indo-Pacific region. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.